And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and, have, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. All right, I have a quick poll for everyone this morning, okay? Raise your hand if you've ever gone on a guided tour. You know, a guided tour, yes, most, most of you know what that is, right? A guided tour is when you are going on a tour, but you have a guide who goes with you who's giving you that inside knowledge, that background information, um, and they, they, generally they are supposed to add some like, special dynamics to the tour, now, when you opt for a tour, you know, for that special guide, you expect to be treated accordingly. You expect a nicer treatment. You expect that extra pizzazz once in a while. And most of us would complain if we had a tour guide who was, you know, rude to us. But I think we would especially complain and we'd be really, really frustrated if our guide led us to the wrong place entirely. So when we read Luke chapter 4 in these first 13 verses, we wonder did Jesus have a bad tour guide? Because in chapter 3, which we studied last week, we read about how Jesus had been baptized in the Jordan River. We read about how at that baptism, the heavens opened up and how the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as a dove and how we hear God the Father speaking from heaven, saying to Jesus that you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then we come to chapter 4 where we read that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, that here's God himself in all of his power, here on earth, ready to set off. What's going on here? Set off, and he's ready to go to his ministry work. So what is he going to do? Now, I think for many of us, we would, with that kind of background knowledge, we would expect that Jesus would go to a place like Jerusalem, which is the, the city of David, the, the hub of that region. And he was going to go declare that God had come, that he was here to overthrow and destroy this idolatrous, evil Roman Empire. He was going to punish the evildoers. He was going to punish all those who were enemies of God, and he was going to rally the people of God. That's what we'd expect. That's what the, the Jews of those days expected as well. For hundreds of years, they had been waiting for this Messiah, this Savior, to come to set all things right, to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies, which they knew by heart. And so what better place for this Savior, this Messiah, to go than Jerusalem to rally their troops? 
But that's not where the Holy Spirit, or we can affectionately call him our tour guide, led Jesus, is it? You know, that Jesus didn't lead, the Holy Spirit didn't lead Jesus up to the mount of the city. He didn't lead him to an encampment of Israelite soldiers ready to take down the Romans. No, instead, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, a place that was desolate, a place that actually very few animals would have chosen to live. There weren't people to rally there. There weren't, this wasn't the sort of place where this, a conquering hero, a savior, a Messiah was supposed to go. So we have to ask ourselves, so why did the Spirit lead Jesus to this place? Was this a mistaken tour guide? Did Jesus make a left when he should have gone right? Like, was this a problem? And we especially wonder when we think about what happened to Jesus in the wilderness, right? He went for 40 days without food. And to make it matters even worse, he was tempted by Satan. Satan, who is this accuser, the fallen angel, this enemy of God. So again, we asked ourselves, like, did God make a mistake going to this place at this time? And what Scripture teaches us, though, is absolutely not. That Jesus spending the 40 days in the wilderness was a part of God's plan, just as much as Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River was a part of his plan. That Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, went into this wilderness, to this desolate place to battle. He went to this place to fight Satan, to be met with temptations. And this was a key moment in his ministry. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was able to overcome every, every temptation that Satan put his way. So this morning, we're going to spend a little time talking about temptations. We're going to think about how sin so easily entraps every one of us. And we're going to be forced to admit, as much as we don't want to, that we simply cannot overcome temptation on our own. But we're going to see that through the work of Jesus, that we don't have to be bound by this power of sin. That we actually, too, just like Jesus, can be full of the Holy Spirit. That God himself can dwell within us. And how he can free us from this bondage of sin and temptation. So our our takeaway truth this morning is the Holy Spirit is the answer to overcoming temptation. The answer to overcome temptation is not an increased mental willpower or a six-part plan. The answer to coming over, overcoming temptation is a reliance and resting on the Spirit of God. So what we're going to do this morning is, and I love it, this is a very Presbyterian-style message, three temptations, so three points, right? So, yeah, amen. So, so how does the Holy Spirit work in us? How is the Holy Spirit the answer to overcoming temptation? I want to put it before us three different ways. The Holy Spirit reveals our true need. The Holy Spirit reveals our true purpose. And the Holy Spirit calls us to trust. So first, the Holy Spirit reveals our true need. Our passage tells us that Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. And that during those 40 days, he did not have anything to eat. And as at the conclusion of these, these 40 days... Verse 2 tells us that Jesus was hungry. Now, it's important to remember that Jesus was fully God. 
and that Jesus never stopped being God in his incarnation. But we have to remember that Jesus was also fully man, that Jesus experienced things like fatigue. He felt hunger. He felt thirst, as, as our verses tell us. And it was when Jesus was feeling this extreme hunger that the devil came with the first of his three temptations. Satan said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, first, we kind of wonder, why is this a temptation? You know, it doesn't seem that bad. It's not wrong to eat bread. You know, we shouldn't read this passage and think that we're, it's, a, it's a command for us to go into the wilderness for 40 days without food. And that should be a great relief to many of us. Because some of us are already worried that we're going to have to wait for a table at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> so the temptation, it's, it's, it's weird about food. We're kind of wondering about that. But then also, like, the temptation want, makes us wonder because Jesus, it would not have been a problem for him to make a rock into bread. Now, what, we're, we're in chapter 4 of Luke, but when we come to chapter 9, we're going to read about Jesus feeding the thousands of people. And how Jesus fed thousands of people with two fish and five little pieces of bread. So Jesus was more than capable to turn this stone into the, breast, the best loaf of bread ever made. So we wonder, like, but it's obvious that there's clearly something underlying in this temptation. And I believe that the answer to that is a connection and the answer way back into the start of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about Adam and Eve and how they were in the Garden of Eden. Right? Adam and Eve, they were living in paradise, and they had nothing that they needed. Everything that they ever could have dreamed for was there. But it was in this Garden of Eden, this place of perfection, of paradise, that the serpent, who we know it to be Satan, came, and he tempted Adam and Eve to eat from that one tree of, that was forbidden, that they were supposed to eat the fruit from this forbidden tree. And Satan told the, Adam and Eve that if they were to eat, they would become like God. So this, this couple, they ate from this fruit. But the result wasn't commonality with God. The result was entrance of sin into the world. It meant total corruption of all that God had made. And all of mankind was being separated from God, their maker. Now, the Bible teaches that Satan is crafty, he's sneaky, he's, dece he's a deceiver. But his temptations throughout history tend to have lots of similarities. You know, Satan came to Adam in the garden, tempting Adam to eat. And then in Luke 4, which we read a minute ago, Satan is approaching Jesus, who is called the second Adam who is the descendant of Adam, like we read about in the genealogy in chapter 3. And here Satan is tempting Jesus to show that he's the son of God by, eat, by making stones into bread. Because what Satan was saying was that what Jesus needed the most was food. He was saying that Jesus didn't really have to experience hunger, that if Jesus was truly God, then he should feed himself, and he shouldn't feel hunger like humans do. When we think about that background, that explains why this temptation is so heinous. Because this whole idea goes against this idea of Jesus' humility and his, his humanity. 
that Jesus came to earth to fully sympathize with our weaknesses, to be fully man, to experience hunger and thirst and fatigue. And if Jesus was simply just putting his own needs aside, if he was just saying, like, oh, I'm hungry, I'm going to make a piece of bread out of nothing, what he's doing is he's not truly being a man. He's being, rather, he's being, he's being God. He's not taking on sympathizing with our weaknesses in the same way. So Jesus needed to feel hunger. He needed to feel tired in order to fully sympathize with our weaknesses. God doesn't do things out of selfish purposes. And this is what Satan is telling him to do. He's like, oh, just, just feed yourself. You deserve this. But Jesus is saying, that's not at all what I need right now. What Jesus was saying, his greatest need at that moment was the word of God. The way that Jesus responded to this temptation was in the first half of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which reads, man does not live by bread alone. If we continue that verse in Deuteronomy 8, we see that it says, so man does not live by bread alone, but, but which then goes on to say that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That Jesus' greatest need at that moment was not simply bread or comfort, but what his need was, was for the word and the presence of God. That it was actually the word and the connection with the Holy Spirit that was sustaining him those 40 days in the wilderness. And that's evidenced by the fact that when, when tempted, Jesus refuted the devil by using Scripture. So I want us to think about for a, for a moment our own needs. And what is it that we would say are our greatest needs? How much time do we spend thinking about what it, we need or focusing on what we need or what sometimes we feel like we're owed in life? It's not wrong for us to, to want or desire you know, food and shelter and transportation or any needs like that. But it's amazing how quickly and easily we take even the most basic needs and we elevate them to such a level that our lives become a quest for self-fulfillment Rather than, rather than God glorification. Glorification meaning, you know, praise and worshiping God. To use the, the book of Judges in that wordage, they says that we are so tempted to do what's right in our own eyes, to cater to our own personal needs, because we start to feel that those are what's most important in life. And it's easy to fall into that because we live in a world and a culture that fully embraces that mindset. We live in a culture that promises to fulfill every dream, every desire, every fantasy that we may ever have. If you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress, the, the author John Bunyan spoke of this ideology when he, he wrote his chapter about going through the city called Vanity. In, this, in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, the, the heroes are walking through on the, on, the, on the way to the celestial city. They're walking to heaven. But to get there, they have to go through this city called Vanity. And in Vanity, there was this fair that would be running for 24 hours a day. And in this fair, that they, people could get every sort of earthly pleasurable desire they wanted. But as the, as the heroes are going through the city, they quickly realize that nothing that was actually being offered could satisfy the travelers. Our world has so much to offer, but ultimately it has nothing that, 
nothing that it offers can actually truly satisfy us. That Vanity Fair, our world, our culture cannot fulfill our greatest need. And our need for true satisfaction in life. Because when Adam and Eve sinned so many years ago, their sin did not just impact themselves, but it impacted everyone. It impacted us so greatly that every one of us is in fact born sinful. That we sin because we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we deserve judgment for our sin account. Our greatest need in life is not money, sex, or power, or any of the other most prized idols of human history. The Holy Spirit reveals to us that our greatest need is our need for salvation. Our greatest need is the need for deliverance from our sin, from the fruit of temptation, because our sin problem is worse than we can imagine, that our need is so great. And just as the Holy Spirit, though, reveals to us our need, this great need that we have, he reveals to us also how there's a fulfillment of that need, that there's an answer to our need, and that's found in Jesus. The Holy Spirit reveals to us that our true satisfaction in life and our deliverance from sin can only be found in Jesus, because Jesus is this oasis in the wilderness, that he is the well that never runs dry. That he's the living water. He's the bread of life. Because we have a need for something that this world, this vanity fair, simply cannot offer. That's why Jesus came to fulfill that need. That's why Jesus came to pay the price that we desperately owed. So that anyone who puts their faith, their hope, and their trust in Jesus will be saved. So I want to ask us all this morning... Has the Holy Spirit shown to us our need for salvation? And then almost even more importantly, has the Holy Spirit shown us our need for the Savior? Because God doesn't just show us a need and then say, take care of it ourselves. He shows us our need and says, I'm going to take care of it myself. Has he shown you the Savior? Because the saving, satisfying work of Jesus is for you. I want to challenge ourselves to not dwell in vanity fair. Don't dwell looking for something that the world simply can't offer. But I would encourage us to run to Jesus because he can satisfy every single one of our needs, big needs and little needs as well. So the Holy Spirit reveals our true need. The second point this morning is the Holy Spirit reveals our true purpose. After the first temptation, Jesus took or Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single moment. And he said to Jesus in verse 6, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. It's a key line. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan knew very well who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus is the actual king of the world. When God made the world after all, so of course he's the king. So Satan knew he was the king. Satan also knew the reason that Jesus had come to earth. He knew that Jesus had come to save his people. Satan also knew that Jesus' work would require pain. It might even require death to fully work. So what Satan was offering Jesus in this temptation was an easier way. 
You know, you know, rather than having to die, Jesus, Satan said, how about you just bow down to me? Because I have all the authority. I have over all the power over these people, over all these kingdoms that you can see. So all it would take to get to that power is just a little bit of worship, and then I'll give it to you all. You know, there's no need to suffer. There's no need to die. Just bow, and everything that you've come to accomplish will be accomplished. But our Lord was not moved, right? Jesus, again, quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. This time he went chapter 6, verse 13, where he said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Even though Satan was making this power grab, how he was putting Jesus on this mountain saying, Look at all you can see. I'm king of all that. Jesus really, he knew he's the, he's the true king. But Satan is not a king over all that he could see. Satan's not worthy of worship because the only one worth worshiping is God alone. And Satan himself, the enemy of God himself, even understood that. Because notice in verse 6, that little phrase, for it has been delivered to me. Satan is not independent of God, but Satan only has power and authority over what God allows him to have. God and the devil are not equals. It's not a sort of situation where it's like a yin and a yang, that light and darkness are going back and forth. God is far superior to Satan every single way, which means that Satan doesn't deserve an ounce of our worship. So Jesus was unwilling to worship Satan because he was also unwilling to abandon his purpose for coming to earth. That Jesus came to crush the head of Satan, not to worship him. That Jesus came to restore the relationship between God and mankind. That Jesus came to save his people from sin and death. That Jesus didn't just come to be a good example, but Jesus came to save sinners. That Jesus came to save us who so desperately need to be saved and we should praise God because He is a God who is faithful and He does what He has promised to do. But we can find joy in the fact that God accomplishes His purposes. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning, what is our purpose? What should we be doing with our lives? Now this has been a question that people have asked for centuries you want to have a fun Google search, go look up what is my purpose, and you'll come up with thousands of quizzes and tests and articles about how to find your purpose. And most of these articles will end up with a conclusion, find it out on your own. <laughs> so what we have here, so you type in the question, what is my purpose, and you'll take a quiz, and the quiz will tell you what you think your purpose is. You're like, oh, that's helpful. So don't, don't waste your time with that search. It's not, it's not worth it. But let me commend to us that the answer to our purpose question is actually given to us in our passage in Deuteronomy 6, what Jesus quoted, that our purpose in life is to worship the Lord our God, that our lives are made to be acts of worship. Romans 12 is a, is a key chapter of my life, and that chapter says that our lives are to look like living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God that our lives should be characterized by regularly worshiping God with His people through song, prayer, and study of Scripture. 
We're supposed to personally study the Word of God. We're supposed to spend time in prayer. We're supposed to spend time loving and serving others, kind of like what many of the guys did yesterday. We were made to worship, which means that Satan will do everything in his power to stop us from living out our purpose. We are so tempted to worship others and other objects other than God. Now, for, now for some of us, though, we don't, we don't think this is a real problem for us. Now, we say, well, I start out my week going to church on Sunday, and that's the only church or place of worship I go on a week. You know, I'm not going to temples of Greek gods or goddesses or anything like that. You know, we don't have shrines in our houses except for the bowling trophies prominently displayed on the mantle. But for many of us, Sunday morning may be one of the few times that we're intentionally worshiping God. You know, during the week, other things, other activities are prioritized, and they get our focus, they get our attention. And what quick, so quickly happens is that God becomes the tack-on, that God becomes the good luck charm for us in our week. But friends, God deserves so much more than our scraps. He's the one that made us. He's the one that sustains us. Jesus is the one who went into the wilderness to battle Satan on our behalf. He's the one that paid the ultimate price that we simply could not. Now, we live in a, in a go, go, go culture. And I think, I think of especially of parents with kids who are just so busy running all over to get the kids to recitals and games and clubs and you name it. And it's, and it's a good thing to give our kids opportunities. But I really need you to hear me in saying this. That if, as parents, we don't incorporate times of worship in our, in devotion into our weekly schedules now, we should not be surprised to see our kids walk away from the faith. Don't let family worship become the one thing every week that gets put off to the side. We need to make time for worship. Make time for it. Ten minutes before bed, if that's all you can afford to do at this time. But make it a habit, because these habits have eternal ramifications. We need to teach our children the value and importance of worship. But I think also we need to teach ourselves that value as well. We need to recognize that my purpose in life is to worship God. And I need to remind myself of that over and over and over again. Because it's so easy for us to let that go by the wayside. The Holy Spirit is the answer to overcoming temptation because he shows us that grace need for, is for Christ. The Holy Spirit shows us that our purpose in life is to worship God and God alone. But then also the third way that we see the Spirit being our answer to overcoming temptation is that the Holy Spirit calls us to trust. You know, the third and final temptation that Satan put before Jesus was on top of the temple in Jerusalem. So our text tells us that Satan took up Jesus and took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, there are different views about what specific spots in the temple that was. Um, that honestly doesn't add much value to us kind of debating that back and forth. But what we know is that the place that he put Jesus was a high place and it was a noticeable place. So to, to fall from that level would have been deadly. 
And also people would have noticed if somebody was falling from that spot. And so Satan put Jesus on this pinnacle, and then he tempted Jesus to do what? To jump. But what was really unique about this temptation is that Satan actually used Scripture in the temptation. Satan quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan was saying, Hey, if you're God, you have angels around to protect you, that they would not let anything bad happen to you. So what you need to do is you need to jump from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, surrounded by tons of people, and the people will see it happen and they will be amazed. Some of the scary things here is that Satan knows the Bible, that Satan knows the Word of God probably more than most of us do. But Jesus' response is so helpful here because it reminds us that simply knowing the words of the Bible, of what the Bible says, is not the same as understanding what those words truly mean. As, as Jesus responded again, again, he goes back to Deuteronomy 6, we are reminded that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. That just because the angels, yes, were there to serve Jesus, to protect Jesus, that doesn't mean that Jesus was supposed to throw himself off the temple to prove a point. Now, the Bible says things like, do, do not murder, love yourself. Like, Satan, this is not a hard one here, but, um, but we get the point that he's trying to say, well, Scripture says one thing, so it means you should just jump off the temple. But as Deuteronomy 6 says, that we are not to put God to the test. No, instead, God calls us to trust in him. So we have to, again, another question we ask ourselves this morning is, why should I trust God? And I think that one of the best answers for that is what we see at the end of verse 13, Luke chapter 4, where it says this, this phrase about this opportune time. After Jesus had defeated Satan, all three temptations, Satan says, he, the scripture says that Satan departed from Jesus and he went and left until an opportune time. Well, this opportune time comes up in Luke 22. In Luke 22, we read that Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. This is one of the scariest things, I think, in Scripture, where we see Satan himself going into a man, into Judas Iscariot. And it was in this case where Judas was, he was possessed by Satan, and that led to Jesus' arrest, betrayal, trial, and eventually the crucifixion of Christ. If, you've, if you haven't read the, the story of, of Luke 22 and afterwards for a while, just remember, we remember the torch of Jesus was horrific. Many of us remember all that Jesus went through. We remember the mocking crowds, the, the harsh treatment from the soldiers, the unfair trial that happened in the middle of the night. We, we know about all those outward physical things that are happening to Jesus, but I think sometimes we don't always think about the spiritual realm at that moment in time. Think about the, the angels as they were watching in agony as their Lord was being mocked and beaten. Even kind of using that language from Psalm 91, which Satan used, 
They had to watch as Jesus' feet and his whole body were struck with nails and whips and rocks and thorns and clubs. And these angels, they were commanded to not interfere with what was happening. Their Lord was being killed, and they had to stand by and watch. And while the, while the angels are agonizing, Satan and his forces are rejoicing. Now, Satan must have been thinking, I have done it. I have won. I have killed God. If, if you're a fan of the, the Chronicles of Narnia, I think of that scene with the white witch killing Aslan, how they were rejoicing. and They, they had done it. They had killed the great lion. They had killed God. But did Satan actually win? He thought he did. But what Scripture teaches us is that Satan did not win at all. That the cross was Jesus' plan, not Satan's. That Jesus is the one who put himself on that cross, not Satan. And we know that this was Jesus' plan because Jesus did not stay dead. But that Jesus rose on that Sunday morning, having defeated sin and death. That death had been swallowed up by victory. Friends, there's going to be times in our lives when it feels like the Spirit is leading us in directions that make us feel like we're lost on the tour. We're going to think that there's no possible way that God had intended for things to happen the way that they did. But it's in those moments that God especially calls us to trust in Him. Because God has a plan for our lives. That just as God had a plan that included the battle in the wilderness in Luke 4, his plan that included him dying on the cross, his plan that included calling sinners to himself, sinners like you and like me, God has a plan for our lives. This week, we are all going to be attacked with temptation in one way or another. And if you are in, but if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you have the answer of overcoming temptation living inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we equate the Holy Spirit to simply a conscience, like oh, you know, I chose to, you know, kind of like even the angels on angel and demon on his shoulders. The Holy Spirit is so much more than a figment of a cartoon. The Holy Spirit is the living active God who is working in your hearts and your lives, who's, who, yes, understands you will face temptation, but he is with us, and he will help you overcome every temptation that has been known to man. This week, we need, let's just, let's strive, let's work to rely on him more than we've ever done before. May we be reminded that our God has taken care of our greatest need, that my need for salvation, my need for satisfaction in life has been taken care of by God himself. And then what do we have? We know that fulfilled need. Let's live out our purpose and worship our Savior. Again, maybe it's 10 minutes before bed, but let's make that something that we can't live without this week. And then as we're going through trials that inevitably come this week, May we trust in God as he makes our path straight. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that this week we'll have challenges, that we will be tempted by things that so often we, we want, we, we desire. But we recognize, Lord, that we have the answer to overcome temptation 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are living in your people. I ask, Lord, that you strengthen us, you encourage us, and help us to truly live out our purpose to worship you. Even now, Lord, we have this, in this last little bit of our service, may we worship you fully and full, wholeheartedly, Lord, because we recognize that there's nothing greater we can do than to worship you. For all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.